All right, hello. Uh, I guess I'm starting this one off. Uh, thanks, Salvatore, for having me on. My name is Greg Polsher. I'm with the uh, Center for Independent Stud or Studies here. I'm Director of Development and just wanted to have a bit of a pitch to thank you all for your support this year, this end of financial year, and becoming members. Uh, there's many of you out there that are listening in that are members right now, and we thank you so much for your generosity. Uh, but for those who aren't, we just wanted to welcome you uh, to Salvatore at this point. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 13 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Bogonis, and joining me today is James Allen, the Garrick Professor in Law at the University of Queensland. James joins us to talk about the cancel culture. James Allen, how are you? Morning. It's Salvatore or Salvatore? Salvatore. I don't know <laughs> well, what it is. Well, in New Jersey, it's Sally the Greek, but here in Australia, we we go by Salvatore. Thanks for joining us. Look, I want to ask you that you're the Garrick Professor in Law, and a lot of non-academics think it's kind of funny that you have a name, James Allen, but that you have another name, Garrick Professor. Uh, who was James Garrick, and how did he come to fund your professorship? He was not the famous English actor uh, going way back. He was a uh, leading Queensland politician before Federation. And uh, then I think he, just after Federation, he moved to London to become one of the immigration agents. Uh, so he was a you know, moderately successful turn of the century, last century, uh, Queensland politicians. And he died and his sister, spinster sister, uh, endowed the University of Queensland with the, its first named chair. So the Garrick Professor-in-Law is just a sign that you have a named chair and uh, he was, uh, I think, at one point the Attorney General, and his sister endowed the endowed the chair. So the name has just lingered on, and uh, by luck, it ended up in the law school rather than the medical school because she didn't specify. So um, <laughs> as long as I'm here, I get I get this named chair. That's doesn't really it doesn't really indicate very much, but uh, you know, it's a, sort of one of these hidden signs of status in the university system. <laughs> well, I actually looked up the amount. It was. 10,000 pounds back in 1921, which comes to, if, if my inflation calculator is correct, 800,000 Australian dollars in today's money. Of course, that was back in 1921. So given all the interest accrued on that, you must be pretty well taken out well, care you of. Well, you know, $800,000, that would be half of a vice chancellor's salary. So you don't want to sneeze <laughs> at it, do you? Look, we're here today to talk about cancel culture and hopefully with an endowed professorship you don't have to worry too much about getting cancelled at the University of Queensland. But you did have an op-ed in The Australian on June 16th about cancel culture. Look, what is cancel culture? Let's just start with the basics. What, what are you complaining about here? So, I mean, I think both of us, uh, Salvatore, we would say that uh, societies tend to do better where people express differing views. And if you don't agree with the other view, you indicate why. You mount some sort of an argument. Nobody is asking you to go out to dinner or have people over you don't agree with. But the cancel culture is just a shorthand for, for um, a trend that we're seeing where rather than debate views you don't like, you try to extinguish the views so they don't exist anywhere in the public sphere. And so if someone says white lives matter, uh, the, the Twitter mobs try to get that person fired, and recently we have seen that. Or if you're working for the New York Times or one of the papers, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and you say, well, buildings matter too. Uh, rather than say why that might be a little insensitive, you just get the guy fired. Right. And it creates this 
Orwellian sense that uh, you either espouse the politically acceptable um, line or you will be, you, they will try to take your job away from you. And a lot of people just aren't very uh, brave. They're pretty cowardly in the face of these sort of attacks. They have terrible long-term consequences, in my view. Um, it's Orwellian because it's, they generally present themselves, these, these sort of authoritarian, anti-free speech people, they present themselves in, under the guise of tolerance. But they have no tolerance at all for any views other than their own. So they see themselves as sort of having a pipeline to God and being angels on earth. And if you veer from the accepted line of thought at all, they want to crush you. They want to silence you. They want to take your job away. If you're working for Sky, they want to mount a campaign against the advertisers so that uh, you lose your, your job. They have no tolerance at all in the Lockean 17th, 18th century sense of the word. Tolerance for them is a sort of moral bumper sticker, you know, virtue signaling. I've heard they thrown around a lot. Who are this they? It's quite a small minority. Uh, there was a study came out of the U.S. in the last week that said 2% of Americans actually post on Twitter. And these sort of Twitter poster types uh, are driving far too much of the media response. So you've got lazy journalists who take their ideas from the latest uh, whatever's trending on social media or Twitter. Um, these people have about as much represent, they're about as representative as the, the local Greens, Trotskyite, Vegan collective. They're not representative of most mainstream views. And, and so that's partly a problem. Um, I think partly a problem is, and we'll probably get into this, that um, to some extent our educational system in the West has, has not done a great job in the last few decades. I'm not talking just about the fact that you get, I mean, in I, University of Queensland, we get the best students in the state. They go off to be Rhodes Scholars. They know no grammar. What? I mean, I'm sorry, I what? No grammar. I mean, they don't know any grammar. They don't know where you put an apostrophe in the possessive. Um, <laughs> they're just not taught it. And so, you know, we, we're below, like, Kazakhstan in the international rankings. But I, I'm sorry, they go, off, they go off to become what kind of scholars, James? Well, we get Rhodes Scholars coming through our law school pretty much every year. They're very smart. They oh, just well, don't know any grammar. Well, that's, that, that's my, my prompt to you about Cecil Rhodes, who, of course, is a subject of the cancel culture himself. I mean, the Rhodes Must Fall campaign has finally won, and uh, the Oxford College has said it will remove Rhodes from his plinth. I mean, what do you think about these tearing down of statues? They must be the same milieu as the cancel culture. Uh, it's funny you asked that because I have a piece out in this week's Spectators, out today, tomorrow. Uh, it's remarkable that when you look around the politicians in the Western world, the one who's got the most oomph and cultural sort of aggression in terms of defending the status quo is, uh, is President Macron in France, who last week said, we will not take down any statutes in France. We will not take down any paintings, warts and all. This is our history and nothing is coming down. And that just ends the problem. What we have is a political class that is very weak. Boris Johnson's been a huge disappointment on this front. Um, Morrison's better. But effectively, if anyone touches a statue, I like what President Trump has done. Uh, they will now be looking at 10 years in prison. Good. If you want to take something down, there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. I, I wouldn't take anything down. 
but certainly having a mob topple something. Most students don't know anything about Cecil Rhodes. By the standards of his day, he was quite enlightened. He opened up uh, more educational opportunities than anyone in his generation, including opening up some early Rhodes scholarships to uh, South African blacks. Um, of course, by our standards today, he's a flawed guy, but you know, in 200 years, everyone alive today is going to look flawed in some sense. Who knows? Maybe they'll all be vegans then or whatever. But, uh, you know, Cecil Rhodes was an industrialist. He had colonial views. Well, that was what everyone, that's how everyone pretty much thought. Um, it's very difficult to, to judge your great-grandfather as a moral cripple um, and not think that you'll be judged as a moral cripple in three or four generations. He, by the standards of his day, Cecil Rhodes was quite a remarkable figure. Um, even if he weren't, the idea that you turn, the idea that you you take down statues because the person is less than perfect. And I noticed that in the UK, no one's taking down statues of Karl Marx or Lenin. Lenin is probably you know after you name the big three, Hitler, Stalin, and Mao, you, then you'd probably have to put Lenin as one of the most um, ruthless, mass-murdering people on the planet. So it's clear that a lot of this has to do with uh, sort of the barely disguised left-wing, aggressively left-wing politics. Right. There's a strange situa situationality here, if you'll forgive the word. Um, I, I mean, I imagine, I, I wonder how many people who want to topple statues in the US, UK, Australia, if I put that back to them and said, well, in Italy, the whole country is full of churches that were built on wealth from the exploitation of Native Americans, uh, the terribly harsh, I mean, if you think colonialism was harsh in Australia, don't go to Latin America, right? I mean, the terribly harsh colonialism of Latin America, all that wealth was sucked into the Vatican and all these monuments in Italy. Of course, there were so many morally flawed people from Machiavelli on down uh, in Italy in the Renaissance. If, But if we were to say, well, as a result, if we don't agree with Cosmo de' Medici, we should destroy all of Michelangelo's works. I think most people would be aghast. Yet, how is that different from what people are demanding to be done in the US, UK, and Australia? I, I, I don't quite understand that, that cognitive dissonance. I mean, do you have any insights into that? Well, firstly, I wouldn't be giving people ideas, Salvatore. <laughs> uh, leave, leave that aside. Uh, on your first point, uh, the, there's always a comparative aspect to these things. And, and you're right. If you looked at the colonial powers from 130 years ago, here's just a fact. The Brits were the least aggressive of all the colonial... If you were having to choose who you wanted to be colonized by, you certainly weren't going to pick the Belgians, who basically killed everyone they came in contact with. Um, you, you would have picked the Brits. They were by far the most liberal. Now, were they measuring up to the standards of today? Of course not. And they could be brutal. But again, life is full of comparative judgments and nuance, and they, this just gets swept aside. Um, in terms of taking down the past, I always ask people, how are you any different than the Taliban in Afghanistan? I mean, they're fired by a moral fervor, believing they're doing God's work, and they just take down anything that doesn't accord with their present-day view of what's uh, morally righteous. Um, unless you can tell me how you're any better than the, the Taliban, you don't learn from the past if you take down everything you don't like. And I mean, as you say, there's some magnificent works in Italy and, and pretty much everyone in the past is not living up to today's, um, you know, inner city Macchiata drinking 
virtue signaling standards. If that's your test, then you pretty much have to take down everything. Uh, you know, there was a very funny clip in Britain where someone interviewed a girl and asked, what did you think about taking down Churchill's statue? And she said, well, I'm not sure. I've never really met him. And you're thinking, okay, so we're dealing with people who are just stupid, really. That's all you can say. Uh, you know, they painted fascist on Churchill's statue. Whatever you think about Churchill, the man is the greatest anti-fascist who ever lived. If it, as one of my friends emailed to me, an Indian from the continent of India, if it weren't for Churchill, pretty much every non-Aryan race would either be enslaved or dead. And so the idea that you would take down Churchill's statue because you don't like what he did with the gold standard, or you feel that he maybe was a little bit aggressive in the general strike of the 1920s, you're just a moral idiot. The man was the greatest anti-fascist. If it weren't for him, the Brits wouldn't have got into the war. And so pretty much every non-Aryan race would be enslaved or dead. And if people don't know that, they really ought to learn it. Well, look, it's easy to ridicule and make fun, especially with an audience. And we have a very friendly audience, I'm sure, today on YouTube. But I, I do want to push you about this, about how deep this trend goes in Anglo-American or specifically in British culture. I mean, you compared today's iconoclasts to the Taliban or to Islamic State, but I might compare them to the iconoclasts of the English Reformation, when, of course, throughout England and for that matter in Scotland as well, statues were torn down the you know the the rudewell cross was destroyed i mean this this priceless medieval treasure all of uh, the 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 church art of the middle ages in england and scotland was destroyed in this wave of iconoclasm is this something that's deeply embedded in our english derived cultures uh, or is this really something new that just arose in the 21st century well, it's an interesting point because, of course, if you're seeing the world through a religious sort of lens, and I come from a long line of Scots-Canadian Calvinists who were probably doing some of the work back then of ripping things out of the, you know, in the 1530s, um, if you're seeing everything in terms of an eternal rightness or justice, then, of course, if you think you're right and they're wrong, you want to erase traces of it. Um, in today's world, where... I mean, I'm an atheist. I don't know what most of the viewers are, but I, I wrote a piece in a book. I have a lot of sympathy for the religious worldview. I think it's probably done more good than bad over, over history. And I, I hate this idea that you have to take out of the public sphere on some sort of bogus Rawlsian um, view that anybody who's motivated by religious principles doesn't get to speak. Um, but in a world where more and more people are probably secular, not religious, um, there's a fairly strong argument to be made that they don't then become Bertrand Russell and think they're living in a meaningless uh, universe where, you know, you're the in a far-off little galaxy in the spiral end and just in a meaningless world. Most people then just can't function like that. They're not David Hume. They're not Bertrand Russell. So they then need to find meaning in something else. They might become vegans. They might attribute to... The planet we're on this this higher meaning although it's not clear to me if you're a an out-and-out -out atheist why you care about some little rock in the far end of a meaningless little solar system <laughs> in a galaxy that nobody cares about but it's hard for human beings not to you know be fired by the sort of religious worldview and it's that sort of view that you are on the right side that then takes you to knocking down statues if it's not or if it's but it's not if you if you step back from that a little and you ask yourself why do you care about the 
the man who gave so much money to the city of Bristol and the fact right. that some of his ships actually made him money from slave trading, um, it's either because you're fired with the sort of Protestant Reformation zeal that you mentioned, which is pretty accurate description of what seems to motivate these people. Um, but if it's not actually got to do with eternal timeless rightness of the universe, so we're not talking religion, why can't you allow some statue of a flawed human being to be on display so people, when they walk by, can say, hey, you know, there's good and bad in life and not everyone's perfect. Um, you know, people are flawed, but sometimes they're good in other ways. And you can recognize that this person gave a lot of money to the down and out poor orphans. Right. They kept a lot of people out of misery. And yet also he was a pretty flawed human being. A guy who wrote Amazing Grace was a slave trader who saw the light and completely recanted and, you know, gave a lot of money. And, you know, they, that's what the, right. the song Amazing Grace that's played everywhere is about oh, really? that slave trader. And what do we are we not going to recognize him because the first half of his life, he was a terrible human being. And the second half, he was a great human being. I have a lot of problems with that. I think people need to say to themselves, uh, now, are you really setting yourself up as someone who has a pipeline to God on these issues? Right. I mean, overnight, to, to go from the 16th century to today, uh, overnight, uh, Facebook was hit with the cancel culture again, uh, with major firms, major advertisers demanding that Facebook censor its site, censor views from its site that they find inappropriate. Uh, but do we have a, I, I mean, I think you and I both agree that this is egregious and wrong, but uh, Facebook's a business. Doesn't it have the you know freedom to decide who should be on its platform? And you know, if people want to organize a campaign to get me kicked off Facebook, well, that's their right as well. Okay, so two things. We'll go back to the underlying principle. Let me just say, I should have said it at the beginning that you know I've had connections over the years with the CIS. It's a great organization and. Uh, I know there's a lot of uh, corporate sponsors. In my view, a lot of the problem is with pusillanimous corporate elite, um, just gutless. They don't stand up. So, in the example I used in my article this week, you know, if if there are if there's a campaign against someone on Sky TV because they articulate something outside the new boundaries of what's acceptable, and the boundary changes every day, um, the, if they run a campaign against getting rid of that person. And the corporate elites cave in, and we know this has happened. It's you know they're doing one right now against uh, Tucker Carlson. It's happened on Sky TV here, um, and they and the argument is basically this free market idea that uh, you know well we're a business, and if our customers are going to boycott us, so there's two things. There's the short term response and the long term response. The long term response is. If this is the game we're playing, we're going to become the most polarized, bi non-bipartisan society ever because it's, it's going to become clear to conservatives that we have to boycott. Because if the only game in town is boycotts and you're not allowed to hear any views you don't want, then the only rational response for people on the other side of the thing is we're going to boycott. So we will start boycotting anybody and, you know, conservatives aren't very good at getting together. We're not as good as the left. <laughs> but eventually you'll be forced into it. So any company that thinks that this is a long-term good strategy is out of its mind. We will become, an, conservatives will be buying from conservative companies, uh, lefties will be buying from lefty companies, and this is a horrible vision of the future. But right now, 
it's the one of the few sort of recourses you have on the right side of politics because nobody's attacking lefties. They say the most horrible things. Nobody's asking for them to be taken off. I think a better short-term view is for the corporate elite to realize it's in our long-term interest to be able to have a market that applies to everybody. And this is a sort of a faux argument that we're just responding. You're responding to under 2% of people who are actually on Twitter. The ABC picks up whatever is trending in Twitter, which is always something on the left. And so it's time for the corporate elite to grow a backbone. I know this is a concept they won't really understand, but it's that thing that connects your brain to the rest of your body and get a little bit of a spine and say, you know, it's, it's like, it's like when they uh, run a campaign against the uh, Danish magazine or against the French magazine. If every newspaper published it the next day and they said, right. if anything happens, we'll publish it for the next week. You stand up to the bullies and the problem ends. So if every media outlet got together and said, we're not going to subject ourselves to these boycott campaigns, which really don't represent more than about 2% of people, we are going to do, you know, for me, I personally, when they pulled down the statute in Bristol, I would put it back up and build another one. And there'd be two of them. And if they pulled both <laughs> those down, there'd be four of them. I mean, I grew up in a very tough high school in Toronto. You know, the girls are tougher than most people I run into in academic life. And the only way you can ever deal with a bully is to say, I'm not, I might not win, but I'm going yeah. down fight. I'm going to make the cost so high. Uh, and then you come back tomorrow and I'm going to make the cost high. That's uh, the that, only way to deal with these people, in my view. Now, you know, yeah. that's a sort of poor part of Toronto attitude. But I, the caving in and the effect sort of, uh, you know, what did Churchill said? I think Churchill said that when you appease people, you're like the guy feeding the crocodile in the hope that he eats you last. <laughs> That's, so, that's what we're looking at. So a, a, a sexist comment like you just made about girls' toughness uh, could get you fired at a university. I am going to ask you about universities in just a moment. First, I do want to remind people that the Center for Independent Studies is a membership-funded organization. It takes no government money, and that includes no job keeper money. As a result, the CIS has been struggling through the coronavirus crisis perhaps more than even more than other organizations have been. Of course, if you yourself have lost your job, you know, take care of your family. But if you have a regular income like I do, uh, during the this crisis, I've contributed extra to the CIS. I'm a member as well as someone who participates in CIS programs. I'd like to ask you to consider doing that too. There's a support link right there, cis.org.au slash support. If you're not a member, please become a member. The lowest membership category starts at $40 a year, which I think most of us can um, rustle up. Uh, if you can afford more, of course, there are you know, more generous donor categories. Uh, if you're already a member, please consider an end of financial year contribution. Now's the time that CIS needs to balance its books. It's a nonprofit organization, and as I said, entirely reliant on of community support. Also, of course, please like the video you're watching right now, subscribe to the channel. We'd love to have you get uh, our future editions of On Liberty. James, I'd like to ask you about the climate at University of Queensland. Now, I don't know, and, and I know that you're outspoken. I don't know if even you are allowed to talk about the Drew Pavlou case. <laughs> Is this something you can comment on? Okay, so two things. I mean, uh, I'm exceptionally lucky. There's we're coming to talk about the universities. Uh, William Coleman at ANU edited a great book. I wrote a chapter, um, Campus Meltdown, I think it's right. called. And so Australian universities are flawed in two ways. I think one is managerial. It's managerialism run wild. We have the most bureaucrats 
compared to academics in the world. They're massively overpaid. I don't even know who sits on the committee that pays them. Uh, you know, and I, when I was just on sabbatical in the U.S., the best law professor makes about half of what the president makes. The highest paid legal academic in this country wouldn't make a fifth of what the president of the university, the vice chancellor, makes. The, the government pretends that these are autonomous decisions, but they're not come off it. You know, the government's putting in 80 to 85 percent of the money and it doesn't do anything. Um, so that that's that's one side. Then you've got the freedom aspect. And I have been exceptionally lucky. I have never had my university ever in any way try to silence me. I personally think it helps to be quite a public figure. And I'm, you know, I grew up in, you know, in a family where you, everyone argued. And I'm a bit of a psycho, so I'd go to the, I'd write an article for the Australian tomorrow. So you make the cost high. Um, but again, my, I've lived through three vice chancellors. You can, no one's ever criticized me in any way, and I'm very grateful for that. Uh, in terms of an internal. Um, sort of employment matter. Uh, so this is going to come back to the distinction between some sort of constitutionalized right to free speech, where you have an entitlement against the government versus a sort of horizontal entitlement. So if you're working for McDonald's, I don't think anyone thinks that you can, uh, in, your, in your break, go out and walk around with a vegetarian sign around the front of the building. I mean, that would should, should get you fired. You might believe in vegetarianism, but uh, while you're at work, your sort of obligation to your employer trumps that. I think that's a pretty easy distinction. So you've got your you've got your personal life, and you don't have to keep that job if you don't want. Um, so on anything internal to the University of Queensland, and believe me, I, almost no one actually knows what's going on with this case. It's not. Um, I I actually am a big believer that uh, if you let people speak, they'll make a fool of themselves. Um, I said that would have always been my approach to any any student. Uh, you know, I I just don't believe in shutting people down. I think the in the long run, the John Stuart Mill version of this that uh, you're going to end up hurting your own case by shutting down speech. If you've got a good case, let the other person speak. Um, this won't come as a complete shock. Uh, I tend not to be consulted by the university about how to approach things. Um, so I don't. I, I mean, I, I have been very free in criticizing universities generally. Um, I don't criticize my own university, usually because the decision-making is so centralized. This is true of all universities in Australia. They are crazily, it's like working in the former East Germany or General Motors in the 1950s. It's so centralized and top-down that, again, this is another problem with decision-making. If you want to make good decisions, you should surround yourself not just with people who you agree with, but people who don't agree with you, so you can at least hear stuff and, and think about it. Um, now, I don't know firsthand, but my guess is that every vice chancellor in Australia doesn't do that. It's just a right. coterie of yes men, or for any anybody who doesn't like the term yes men, then yes women, yes people. Right. people and, and because the rewards of getting into an administration are so high, right. You know, as soon as you get into an administration, you become effectively captured. You're a yes person. You see that $1.6 million salary that the government should do something about. Um, and and so you just become another functioning sort of yes person. Right. This is this is a bad management structure. Right. I'd like to say some quick hellos. We do have uh, Gay watching. Rosalind, Mark, thanks. Uh, Pepe actually asked a question about Drew Pavlou that you so skillfully avoided, uh, James. Uh, we also have, uh, let's see, I think I mentioned Mark. 
uh, Isabel is out there. So thanks everyone for watching. Uh, I'd like to continue going to uh, questions here from viewers. And Gay did ask us, should someone be teaching or should universities be teaching what difference of opinion really is? That is, what should universities be doing differently to encourage students to engage in debates? Well, if you want to get depressed, you can read an American, Jonathan Haidt, who's sort of, he, he bills himself as a center-left man, but he's very disappointed. And in the U.S., of course, this information is more public, because in the U.S., if you give money to a political party, that's public information, and they do a lot more surveys. So they have pretty accurate information about, how, you know, the breakdown of thought on university campuses in the U.S., and law schools tend to run, at least in the elite Ivy League, six or seven to one Democrat to Republican. If you leave the Ivy League, it gets a lot worse than that, 20 to one. But Jonathan Haidt, describing the trend since the 1960s, says it's terrible in some departments, sociology, where, where Salvatore is, you're lucky if you find one openly conservative out of 100, and women's studies departments, aboriginal departments, it's, it's effectively zero. Like, there are zero. So there's... There's no difference, there's no uh, diversity of opinion. And this is one of the ironies when universities will bend over backwards, genuflecting at the foot of diversity. But for them, diversity means uh, some sort of statistical representation of reproductive organs, skin pigmentation. It never means a diversity of outlook, never. You know, they, they don't, I, I don't like affirmative action, but there's, you know, universities love affirmative action. They're never in the game of of using affirmative action to provide an out, a range of outlooks. So in many university departments, it's, it's at least as bad in Australia. Uh, you know, I, when I first got to UQ, um, I ended up in some meeting, fairly high up people, and you know, this is 15, 20 years ago, so none of these people are still at the University of Queensland, but they were slagging off John Howard. It was like 2006, and I said, I like the guy, I think he's great, and the whole meeting went quiet. <laughs> Just for, you know, I've been on Q&A three times, the, I think it was the second time I was going up yeah. the elevator in Ultimo. They didn't know who I was. Right. And they were all attacking Tony Abbott in right. the Ultimo ABC. And I'm thinking, they just assume that someone they don't know will be on their side of politics. And that's because that's a pretty accurate assumption. It was a disgrace, really. I hated the fact that my tax money goes to this monolithic uh, organization. There was a British journalist, I can't remember who it was, maybe... Bartholomew, maybe a Dellingpole, who came out and he said, the ABC makes the BBC look like Fox News. <laughs> We've just been in Britain, and the BBC at least has some conservative presenters, and they do a better job. The ABC, I just have stopped watching. It's, it's got nothing for people like me, zero. I, I was once in the lonely position of defending Tony Abbott at the academic board of the University of Sydney. Uh, look, uh, Mark wants to ask, how does the average citizen you know, who's not in journalism, who's not in academia, fight against this dangerous movement? Uh, how do average citizens hold journalists to account for the propagation of these kinds of distortions? Well, I think it starts with being brave. It's not easy because you can lose friends. But if someone says something, you can say, well, I, I don't actually agree with that. Because people stop making claims and being bullies if they or some do anyway, if they run into people who disagree, they just are doing it because they assume there won't be any pushback. But if you push back and say, well, I don't think that's right. I think it's a bad mistake to topple statues or it's a bad mistake to pretend that, you know, somehow we're, we're, we're going to go down this path. People will tend to then 
um, be a little more circumspect. I mean, I fear that we might be, the, the solution might be to go back to the sort of 1960s. When I was growing up, my, my dad sat me down and said, when you're meeting people you don't know, you don't talk religion and you don't talk politics. And so I would, when I met people, they didn't know anything. I was like a fanatic. Nobody came out and virtue signaled about their politics because you just didn't do that. And they didn't talk religion. You just didn't do that. And, you know, that allows people to function on other levels. So maybe that's where we have to go to, where you just insist on no, no, I, I have broken up um, dinner parties and even family things by saying that I thought Trump was doing a pretty good job. And I do think he, on balance, I, I think he's, he's been um, a much better choice than Hillary would have been. But when you say that, you are looking at an explosive reaction. Oh, I, I shock everyone by telling them I'm a, a, a Sanders Trump voter. One of that five percent. <laughs> well, we have. Look, I, I, Isabel wants to know if you were not a self-avowed atheist, but if you instead were a publicly avowed Christian, do you think that you would receive the respect you do receive? And, and you may feel like you know you're you're not respected, but let's face it, you have a named professorship of law. You're in the Australian newspaper. I mean, if you were saying everything you say, but were also religiously Christian, would you be able to do with the work you're doing now? The first thing to remember is to keep those negative photos of people, important people from 30 years ago, because then you get a lot of, you get a lot of access to stuff. No, I'm kidding. Um, well, I mean, there's some very, you know, well, I don't know. I, 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 I've never really thought about it. I just grew up in a family where, you know, you, if you back down, it was just seen as something you shouldn't do. And we'd argue over the table. I, for a sort of Scots-Canadian Presbyterian family, we sort of operated more like an Italian family. Everyone was yelling. My wife, when she first met me, couldn't believe it when she came over to dinner. Everyone was screaming at everyone, and then you just got up and everyone forgot about it, and nobody held it against you if you disagreed. And I'm sort of, that's sort of been bred in my bone. Um, it's not what a lot of people are used to, but we certainly have very vigorous kids, my wife and I, because they're used to people yelling and screaming at them. And then, you know, nobody thinks twice about it. People are pretty sensitive. I suspect that a well-argued sort of point of view that you don't agree with will, will earn you respect. And um, there are an awful lot of very, very intelligent people who are very religious. I have some colleagues here. Uh, Nick Aroni, he's a very smart, great guy. He has access to a lot. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's a devout guy and he's really smart. And uh, at the very least, people who, who attack... Um, the religious outlook at least ought to have sat down and write, read the Bible. I did that when I was my first job in law in Toronto. And I, this is just cheap advice for anybody, but if you want to get a seat on a crowded train, you just open the Bible. And <laughs> I never had trouble getting a seat for my entire year. It took me to read it because everyone just went and I sat down, but uh, you know, it was one of the greatest things I ever did. Uh, you know, I, you know, you just common parts of our heritage, like uh, the Good Samaritan or a Daniel come to judgment. Most people who are educated today, they don't have a clue what you're talking about. Well, I know so, both of us Both of us appear pretty regularly in Quadrant, and I will point people to the June issue of Quadrant, in which I have my new monthly column called The Philistine. Oh, there <laughs> we go. The Old Testament. So, yeah, I think reading the Bible will get you a long way, uh, whether an atheist or not. Look, uh, uh both Mark and Isabel ask questions about the importance of the humanities or liberal arts. Of course, you know about 
this uh, dramatic propo proposal for dramatic rescaling of, of the cost of a liberal arts degree in Australia, or at least I should say a humanities degree, because I don't think they're very liberal. Uh, what's your own view about liberal arts education? Is, is it be done, being done right? Is it being done wrong? How can we do it better? Should law students be doing a little more liberal arts? I mean, what, what's your own take on the role of liberal arts in education? Well, I'm Canadian, and when, to do, when you become a lawyer in Canada, it's like the U.S., you have to do a first degree. So I did math and philosophy. But, you know, that involved taking an American literature course and, uh, you know, a lot of philosophy, a lot of math. Uh, but I thought it was great. I never took economics or politics. Um, and then you, you go on and do medicine or, or law. I quite like that model, but we don't have that here. Um, now, my attachment to humanities, and I, and, it, and I think even today, if you look at the CEOs of the top 500 companies in the world or the top 100 in the U.S., I think the leading subject they took in their first degree, remembering that you can't just go straight into law or medicine, was philosophy. So if you get philosophy taught properly, and you're reading, you know, and that usually includes some, some logic and some analytical philosophy, it, is, it teaches you how to think. And I think math does the same thing, by the way. Um, you know, if you, if you can do taught math, you, you can take apart an argument. You might, you know, your premises might not be shared by me. The problem, I think, is that there's more and more evidence, not just in Australia, but around the world, that the way we're teaching humanities makes it basically uh, sort of a subset of grievance politics. And really, it's not clear why anyone would want to hire an expert in grievance politics. Well, you know, a shrill grievance. So humanities is, is you know, not taking apart and deconstructing um, the poems of Robert Frost. It's actually reading Robert Frost and reading... Um, you know, Jane Austen, one of the great writers of all time, Jane Austen, you know, but you don't want to just be immersed in this, this nihilistic creed where everything boils down to power politics and nobody can be motivated by anything other than either oppression, if you're on one side, or being a victim on the other. You know, I've always, I said to my kids, because I got it from my parents, the worst thing in life is to see yourself as a victim. You know, one of the great things, I lived in Hong Kong and worked there for four years. One of the things I just loved about the Chinese culture is, and let's be honest, outside of China, one of the groups in the world that's been hammered are the Chinese. They're hammered in Malaysia today. They've been hammered around the world. I had many Chinese friends, and they never saw themselves as victims. They got on with things. They're wonderful immigrants. They work hard. They're almost never on welfare. They don't look back and say, you know, two of my ancestors oppressed the other six or, you know, a hundred years. They just get on with things. And that's why they're so successful. And in terms of an individual person doing well in life, one of the worst ways to succeed in life is to see yourself as a victim. Right. Everyone who's alive today in Australia has won the lottery. This is the best time ever to be alive. Go and read Matt Ridley. Everyone is doing better than almost everyone else in the world. So if you're from the West, in that tiny percentage of the population alive today, you have won the lottery. You know, the, the people who are complaining, some middle class manager who happens to have one set of reproductive organs and feels that I didn't get the exact promotion I wanted. I, you know, I, I get turned down for everything because of my political views. Um, that person is doing better than 99.999% of people on the planet. Right. You're not a victim. Right. Well, I've been turned down for promotion three times now, but I'm still extremely yeah. happy. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, look, and look. you know, with your views, Salvatore, it's just, 
The universities are biased against conservatives. That's just a fact. Oh, I, I, I don't claim to be a conservative. That's your label, not mine. Look, I'm going to ask you one final question uh, about law. And, and because you are you know, a law professor, I'm going to ask you some, for some legal advice. But before right. I do, I just want to uh, you know, remind everyone, we'll be wrapping up soon, remind everyone, please do click that support button. We, we really would love to have your support for the end of financial year. Uh, look, James, you wrote a book, uh, or an article, I should say, against written constitutionalism. Now, as an American, I'm a big fan of written constitutions. Why don't you want to see written constitutions? Why not a First Amendment for Australia guaranteeing everybody's uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly? Okay, so there's two answers. I'm going to do the long answer second. The short answer is every Bill of Rights since... So at the end of the Second World War, the U.S. and France were the only countries in the world with the Bill of Rights. The French is not justiciable. Um, the Americans have like 120 years of First Amendment jurisprudence that locks in aggressive free speech. Every single other domestic sort of democracy in the world has a Bill of Rights except for Australia now, and none of them protect free speech the way the U.S. does. You cannot import the First Amendment jurisprudence. What you will get are judges who end up preferring equality concerns over free speech concerns. You have more scope to speak your mind in Australia today without a Bill of Rights than you do in Canada with the most aggressive Bill of Rights or anywhere in Europe under the European Convention. And that is because it's a long explanation, but one explanation is that the legal fraternity, the lawyerly caste has gone from being moderately conservative to far more left-wing progressive than the general population. And whenever presented with the choice between upholding a hate speech provision um, or striking it down, they will never strike it down outside the US. The slightly longer answer is, if you live in New Zealand where there is no written constitution, or Britain after they deliver the Brexit and they get out of the EU, effectively the legislature is unlimited. So they can make any law they want, and your recourse is to vote them out or to expect that you, there's a certain shared morality. So when you move to a written constitution, here is how they are always sold. They say, Salvatore... We're going to take a few things off the democratic table, might be federalism, might be bicameral, might be a certain list of entitlements in the, in the language of rights. And what we're taking off the democratic table is cabined, it's, 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 you know, it's bracketed. And everything else will still be subject to democratic politics. And so the promise that you're being made is that the Bill of Rights is not going to be ever expanding. It's a, it's a limited set, as, as uh, Antonin Scalia used to say. So if the intention is not to take capital punishment off the table, that's still going to be left to the democratic process. So that's the promise they make you, because if they said to you openly, look, Salvatore, once we get this written constitution, God knows what's going to happen, but the judges will just make stuff up and they'll, they'll just decide on an ongoing basis, claiming to have their fingers on the pulse of civilization, what people can do, and it'll be outside of democratic politics. Nobody would sign up for that. So the way to get people to sign up to a written constitution is to pretend that it's cabined. And here's the fact. We now know today that it's not cabined. We know that even Justice Roberts will make stuff up. So your scope of what is left to democratic politics is shrinking all the time. Okay. And it's on a basis where they basically have an approach to constitutional interpretation that is thoroughly dishonest, right? Um, everyone knows that Roe v. Wade, I don't care about abortion all that much, but everyone who's honest on every side of politics knows that the Roe v. Wade decision was thoroughly dishonest. If you look at the Love decision here in Australia, thoroughly dishonest. And I mean dishonest in the sense of uh, 
the approach to interpretation. So in other words, when you interpret a written document, if you always end up with an outcome that you would have got if you were the legislator, that's not honest interpretation. If you're reading some other person's words and you're trying to give meaning to them, at least sometimes the meaning you come up with, the honest meaning, is going to be something other than what Jim Allen would have picked if he was God. And the problem is that more and more the judges are adopting an approach to interpretation where they might as well just be first order legislators. And I always say if I have to pick between an elected legislature in New Zealand or nine judges, and notice that judges always decide amongst themselves by voting. You know, here's the rule on any top court, five beats four. It's pure majoritarianism. You can have five useless judgments that are just a joke like Gorsuch's recent judgment in the U.S., and that wins. There's nobody who says, oh, look, you got more references to John Stuart Mill and these wonderful conventions. Um, they just say, let's put your hand up. Right. And so really, it seems to me more and more that we're looking at the size of the franchise. And I'm always going to go with 320 million people having a say. So, so for instance, on the same-sex marriage in issue, leave aside the substance. The way they decided it in Ireland or here or Britain where everyone got to say it's just a better process than where in the U.S. and Canada you have a vote of nine people. That is a terrible way to decide big-ticket social policy issues. The, the Madisonian reply is, well, the judges are the least dangerous branch. Well, that's because when Madison was writing, they were, but today they're the most dangerous branch. They're totally uncontrolled. Um, they use an approach to interpretation that really is just a form of, uh, you know, we're going to go with the most moral answer or the most Dworkinian answer. And that just boils down to what sort of moral values you bring to the table. So that's a long-winded way of saying. Um, <laughs> now, I, I should say that the Australian approach to written constitutionalism uh -huh. is you lock things in without a Bill of Rights. I quite like that. And, <laughs> and, and people should know that Australia has the most American constitution in the world. We have the Madisonian American constitution before Madison was strong-armed into a Bill of Rights, because Madison didn't want a Bill of Rights at right. first. So we, we have the real American Constitution, the one they should have had. Uh, but even without a Bill of Rights, our judges are perfectly happy to make up an implied freedom out of thin air that doesn't exist. They're perfectly happy to tell, uh, to tell uh, Mr. Howard that you, know, you have to close the electoral roll six days later based on nothing um, or the love decision. So... It's very hard to cabin these judges. They go off to these international judicial conferences and, you know, they're hanging out with judges who are deciding who can marry or they're deciding whether there's going to be capital punishment or euthanasia. What do the Australian judges say? Well, I had a tax case. I had this really interesting trust case. You know, they want to be part of the game, part of the we decide everything game. It's, it's a horrible trend. There's, there's quite a bit of literature on this. So that's my long-winded answer. <laughs> Well, a trend for, for another program, it sounds like. Uh, you mentioned if Jim Allen were God, what he would do. Well, Anthony has accused both of us of being heretics, but I think he meant it as a compliment. <laughs> Jim, Jim Allen, thank you very much for joining us on On Liberty. Well, look, Salvatore, it's been a real pleasure, and I uh, keep doing uh, what some people would describe as God's work there at the Center <laughs> for Independent Studies. It's been nice to meet you, uh, ethereally anyway. Uh, so keep up the good work, and I'd try for promotion again. 
Oh, happy to write a letter. <laughs> oh, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Uh, look, our producer, we have to thank our producer, Emily Holmes, for keeping us on the air. Uh, executive producer, Max Hawkweaver, for getting everything set up. The director of the Center for Independent Studies is Tom Switzer. I'm Salvatore Rabonis. Thank you, James Allen. And thank all of you for watching today. We'll see you next week. Thank you.